0: Father, we do thank you for the Christmas season every year. The world celebrates it in many ways, but we know it for what it's really about, Father. And we thank you for the joy that we have in our lives and in the future, in the eternal future that we look forward to because of your son's arrival and because of his life and his witness and mostly because he was willing to die for us, Father. And we, we are made children by faith through that propitiation, through that sacrifice. Thank you, Father, for that. It's a gift we can never say thanks enough for, we can never repay, we could never earn. But we receive it, Father, because we know it is a, a sign of love, that if a man would lay his life down for another, it is the supreme act of love. And ask we ask, Father, that as your word is open tonight in front of us, as we open our Bibles, as we look upon the page and we stare into the wisdom of God, that we would Come away, Father, with not just a greater appreciation for the events of Moses' day, but of a greater understanding of your love for us through Christ. For we know every page of your word testifies to your work through your Son. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Israel is camped a short distance from the mountain of God. That's where we left off last week. We're building toward the moment when Moses reaches Sinai. And begins to ascend that mountain and encounters God and and so on. But until that moment, we're watching the Lord bring Israel through a series of experiences as they move toward the mountain. With each of these experiences, God uses the circumstances to teach them something. And what he's teaching Israel, of course, he's also teaching us indirectly through the scripture. Israel's being introduced to their Lord in this way. And that's really the purpose of these teachings or of these experiences They do not really know the Lord. We know him from the text of Scripture, starting in Genesis and going through the Gospels, of course, and into the New Testament letters. None of this is available to the Israelites. So they know the Lord by what they've seen in Egypt and with the Red Sea, and now what they're learning about him in the course of the wilderness wanderings. And so they have a very beginning knowledge of him. They've seen his wonders. They've seen his powers of destruction. They've seen his faithfulness to his promises through Abraham. Last week, they saw his willingness to provide water and food, manna and water coming out from that rock. Today, they're going to see more of that and some new experiences as well. All of this building and creating a better understanding for them about the God that they've now been called to follow. Looking specifically at the water and the food for just a moment. Those provisions we also studied were pictures of an even greater provision that will come later. That is Christ. Of the Messiah. A picture, by the way, is simply anything that in its form or in its design gives an early indication of something that is greater to come in the future. The food from heaven, for example, we understood was drawing a comparison to Jesus in the sense that, like this manna dropping out of the sky from heaven, Jesus is the bread of life descending from heaven to earth. He sustains us spiritually. He makes possible eternal life, just as that bread in our bodies makes possible physical life. We studied in John 6 how Jesus even compared himself to manna specifically. He even went further and said that the manna God gave to Israel in the desert, that physical food, just left them hungry eventually. And at the end of it all, they died anyway. So that wasn't the ultimate solution to their need. It wasn't the fulfillment of what God's love had prepared for his children. It was just a picture of what was truly prepared. And the picture is a much greater solution that is Christ. Jesus coming from heaven, he must be taken in, spiritually speaking. We must accept him, in other words. And with that, we receive a new life that will never die. So we looked at the food, not only from the literal, but also from the spiritual. Last week, then we moved into the water. Remember, the water came from that rock that was split into two when Moses struck it with his staff. Then the water came gushing out of that rock as God provided it. And it eventually forms a lake, a small lake in that region where they can drink from. Now, that rock is also a picture of Christ. And in what we talked about last week, we did not go into the spiritual as it relates to that picture. We stopped after we went through the literal description of the rock. So tonight I want to take time to complete that understanding on the rock that provided water. Let's look at that now as a picture of Christ. The rock is a picture. And Paul actually gives us this specific application in one of his New Testament letters. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul actually says that this rock was always intended to be a picture of Christ. 1 Corinthians 10, 1. Paul says, for I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers, and he's speaking here about the Israelites who came out of Egypt. He said that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses, into the cloud and into the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. First of all, we know the rock at Horeb was real. So there was a real rock, it was struck by a staff that Moses carried, and real water came out of it. But then Paul goes further and says that God determined to provide water in this way to the Israelites in this unique way so as to create a picture. He could have had water bubble out of a spring. He could have had rainfall like he did for Noah. But no, in this case, he had this very unique form so that we would have a picture later. And that form is that Jesus is the one who gives living water, that is a living spirit, to those who are his and from that new living spirit in us, as we believe and we receive a Holy Spirit that lives inside us, the Holy Spirit, that living spirit changes us and over time has an effect within us to cause us to be a blessing to others, to manifest God in our nature, to be more Christian, as we might say, but not in the external sense, but in the internal sense. John's gospel describes it this way, quoting Jesus. He says, John seven thirty eight. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. So the rock is meant to symbolize Christ. In fact, a rock in general is the most common symbol of Christ in the Old Testament. At various times, Christ is described symbolically in the Old Testament as a rock, a stone, a block, a mountain or a cornerstone. We aren't going to take time tonight to look at how all of those are found and what they mean. You can probably do that on your own, but you get the point. Those symbols will also often include unique features that teach us something about Jesus. For example, there'll be stones that are not cut by human hands, which means they've always been. They've never been created. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the one who was with the Father and has always been. There are stones that are often tested, tested in the sense of to be shown to be pure, and Jesus was tested and shown to be sinless. Stones that have foundations. Jesus is the foundation for all that God is building in the hearts of men. Or they are the cornerstone of a building, the thing that sets the building straight and accurate and begins the building from there. There's also a stone or sometimes it's called a rock of offense over which the unbeliever stumbles because they will not bow to it or will kneel to it. So they stumble or trip over it. These are all images of Christ. Furthermore, The rock in this case, in Exodus, is struck by Moses' staff. Now, Moses' staff in the story of Exodus has already been established for us as a symbol of the Father's authority working with Moses, right? And all the major miracles that the Lord performed in Egypt were done, by and large, through Moses and that staff. Now, the staff wasn't magic. The staff was simply an instrument that God wanted to have associated with him, with his power. So the message of this staff has already become clear to the people of of Israel. The staff or the rod is the way God works through Moses, but it's the work of God evident in the way this staff does things. So as Moses struck the rock with the staff, he formed a picture, one that God intended. That is of the father represented by the staff striking his son for the benefit of the people. So by striking Christ, the Father will bring a river of life flowing to His people. Isaiah gives us this in Isaiah 53, 4. Speaking of Jesus, Isaiah says, Surely our griefs He Himself bore, and our sorrows He carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed Him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell on him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of all of us to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth, like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before his shearers, so he did not open his mouth. So Christ was struck or afflicted. Notice it says he was scourged. Scourging is done through a striking of a kind. This was done to him for our sake by the Father, it says, just as the rock was struck by the rod that God gave Moses. So God wanted the rock struck here as opposed to some other method so that there would be a picture of Christ the rock being struck for us. Lastly, as we finish off on this piece, remember when we looked at the case of the bread, we went to John's gospel and I mentioned that John has this unique perspective in his gospel in which he goes out of his way, it seems, to take... Old Testament pictures and relate stories of Jesus's day that show Jesus fulfilling those pictures. Well, he did that with the manna by the story in John six of Jesus producing the bread for the people. And then when they confront him for more bread, he says, well, you shouldn't hunger for that bread. You should hunger for me. So he shows that he is the true bread. The true fulfillment. Well, as you might expect then, when it comes to the water, there is also a John reference to the water. That comes out of John chapter 4. This is the scene that you probably know of the woman at the well. John chapter 4, verse 7. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. And they're standing at a well. Jesus is at the well. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Well, therefore, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I'm a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle. Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. So it's an exact comparison to what we saw with the bread. The woman here is talking of the need for physical water, water that the flesh would thirst for, in other words. And meanwhile, Jesus is talking about a different kind of water. He's talking in spiritual terms about a spiritual refreshment, if you will, that leads to eternal life. Isn't it interesting, by the way, that our descriptions of hell from Scripture always include images of burning and heat where the sufferers long for just a drop of water on their tongues. And in contrast to that, the believers are told that their faith will bring eternal flowing rivers of water that are everlasting refreshment. Now, I don't know that that's entirely symbolic. In the way Jesus shows himself to be that source of true living water, he fulfills the picture of what the rock showed us in this earlier day for Israel. We're going to move forward now, but what you're seeing in this story then are some very interesting, very iconic, unusual moments, not the least of which, of course, was the Red Sea and all that came before it. But now it's continuing. But each of these are carefully crafted by God. These are not random happenstance events. These are God saying, how do I best show my son in this early way to these people and to those who come later? I'll take a rock and make water come out of it. I'll take bread from heaven and bring it down. These are intentional pictures and there are more moving forward. then we're going to turn back to chapter 17 to still find the nation, as I said, moving toward the mountain of God. And as they move into that place, they're not quite there yet, but as they approach, they find themselves under attack. Verse eight is where we pick up. Then Amalek came and fought against Israel at Rephidim. Well, that's where they've been now. Rephidim is where they've been since we started this chapter and they're still there. And we're told the nation comes under attack for the very first time since leaving Egypt, probably for the very first time ever that we know of. The attacker is a man called Amalek, and he leads a tribe called the Amalekites. They attack Erephidim, which is this encampment near the mountain of God. He is the great-grandson of Isaac through Esau. So he's Esau's grandson, making him the great-grandson of Isaac. He is essentially a distant cousin of the Israelites. And you have to assume as he's living in this land of Midian and he sees two million plus people suddenly move in and camp in his own backyard, you have to assume he felt threatened by them. And so he decides to take action to defend himself. We do have the details, at least some details on this attack later in Deuteronomy when Moses talks about this again in Deuteronomy 25. And in that chapter, he also gives a consequence to the Amalekites. God gives a consequence as a result of their attack. Here's what we learn in Deuteronomy 25:17. God speaking, he says, remember what Amalek did to you along the way when you came out from Egypt, how he met you along the way and attacked among you all the stragglers at the rear when you were faint and weary and he did not fear God. Therefore it shall come about when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your surrounding enemies. In the land which your Lord, the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven you must not forget. Apparently Amalek chose to attack Israel from the rear, it says, to their stragglers. You have to imagine two million people, they move as a mass and then toward the end you have the slowest and the, the weariest and the stragglers as God called them here. And as they're coming close to their encampment, they're the most vulnerable. They get attacked by Amalek. He kind of attacks from the rear. This is a very cowardly way for someone to engage in an attack, not just because we think so. It's generally considered that way, and it was in that day. Moreover, God says, Amalek showed no fear. The people of this land have heard of all that God did. In fact, we looked at what was said in the time of Numbers and what was said in the time of Joshua. How Rahab says the whole land is heard about how all that's happened from the way God brought you out. So we have to assume Amalek has heard those stories as well. And yet they provoke no fear in him. He still decides to attack God's people. And as a result, he's said to have no fear. We will come back to the issue of his final disposition. But just for the moment, notice God says that these things will happen to Amalek once he has fulfilled his promise to Israel to bring them into the land and to give them their inheritance and that they would be at rest in the land. That does not take place and has yet to take place until the time that Israel is there in the Millennial Kingdom. In that day, their memory will be blotted out. There will be no discussion of the Amalekites once Israel is in that land. This is not only said about the Amalekites, but if there's elsewhere in Scripture in which we hear the same said about other enemies of Israel from those in Edom to those in Egypt, and so on. But in the meantime, while we wait for that fulfillment, we are told they are not to forget that God is going to provide this outcome. So in the near term, we're remembering. In the long term, as we reach the kingdom, these things will be removed from memory. In the the same way that we hear Scripture saying, He will wipe every tear, we will no longer mourn, that there will be a day in which these negative histories are no longer on our mind. And hallelujah for it. So then a battle ensues, and that's where we go next. Chapter 17, verses 9 and 10. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose men for us and go out. Fight against Amalek. Tomorrow I will station myself on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. Joshua did as Moses told him and fought against Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. To lead the fight, Moses appoints or chooses this young man, named Joshua. This is the first mention of him in the Bible. He later eventually becomes a major biblical character. In fact, he has a book named after him in the record of Scripture. His name was not originally Joshua. In the genealogy given of his family in Numbers 13, you'll find his name given as Hosea. Hosea means Savior. Later, Moses changes his name to Joshua, which means the Lord is the Savior or Lord is our Savior. So originally his name was simply Savior, and Moses changed it to be more specific: the Lord is our Savior. When the Hebrew word Joshua is translated into Greek, and then again from Greek into English, it arrives at the word Jesus. So the name Jesus and the name Joshua are exactly the same name: the Lord saves. Joshua will become a private servant to Moses. In Exodus 24, we learn that he's been given this role. So. He is Moses' successor that leads Israel into Canaan, and in the near term, he is his protege, his assistant. It's no accident that his name is mentioned here in the same chapter where the rock is struck and water comes out. As we studied earlier in this chapter, Moses was instructed to strike a rock and water came out. And as we noted, the rock pictures Christ. The striking of the rock reflects Jesus having been struck, that is, dying on the cross, for the sins of men. So, in the first part of chapter 17, we learned that Moses struck a rock to save Israel, and it pictured God the Father striking the Son to save God's children from sin. Then later, in Numbers 20, there is a story of a time in which God once again produces water from a rock in response to Israel's complaints. In that future incident, God instructs Moses to speak to the rock. And water will come out. But in his disgust and in his anger at the grumbling of Israel, Moses is impatient. And so instead of speaking to the rock, he strikes the rock again with his rod, just as he has done here in Exodus 17. Now, that action was not in keeping with God's instructions in Numbers 20. And so the Lord becomes angry at Moses for his disobedience. Now, how are those events related to Joshua's appearance here in the second half of Exodus 17? Well, I I thought you'd never ask. As a result of Moses's disobedience in numbers, God disciplines Moses by denying Moses the opportunity to enter into the promised land. So Moses is told he has to die in the desert with the rest of that generation. Furthermore, Joshua then becomes Israel's leader at that point. So in his place, Joshua leads Israel into the promised land. So Joshua is introduced in connection with the striking of the rock in this day, because in the later day, the second incident with a rock and water is the moment when Joshua ascends to the authority that he's given over Israel. Now, the rock and the water and Joshua are closely connected by this later incident. So the one explains the rise of the other, if you will. But it goes deeper than that. You might wonder, why was God so upset at Moses' disobedience? It almost seems capricious, too severe, that Moses would see such an outcome when he just made that one little mistake. And after all, these people have been wearing him down for a long time. You think it's understandable, you know. Well, when Moses struck the rock a second time in disobedience to God's instructions, he distorted the picture that the Lord was intent on creating through the rock. Because by his actions, Moses was suggesting that the Messiah himself would need to be struck a second time by God the Father to save Israel. In truth, we know Jesus dies but once for all sin and will never again be struck in that way. So when the Messiah comes again a second time, he comes in power and glory, not to be struck by a rod, but to rule with a rod of iron and with the sword that comes out of his mouth. In other words, by the striking of God the Father he saves, by the word of God in the second incident, he brings his glory and power. So Moses' disobedience potentially corrupts that picture by suggesting that God's son would need to be struck multiple times. And so God is now forced by that mistake to discipline Moses in this way in order to make clear that his actions were wrong and to create an even better picture to replace the one Moses just maligned. What's that more powerful picture? Well, Moses, we know, is the one who brings the law to Israel. And as a result, we know that Moses comes to represent the law, really. We even call it the law of Moses. The purpose of the law, according to Scripture, is to act as a witness against the people of Israel and People generally, Paul tells us the law was not given to produce righteousness in people. The law was given to reveal unrighteousness by showing that we are all guilty of disobedience. We cannot measure up to the perfection that God requires in our own abilities. Therefore, no man will be saved by works of law, Paul says. So when the very man, Moses, who represents the law is himself shown to be a lawbreaker, He forms an unintentional but fabulous picture that God now turns and uses for his own purposes. The picture is this. Moses, the law giver, is not qualified to lead Israel into the promised land. The law brings no one into the promised land, which is another term in scripture for the kingdom, for salvation. Should we even try to enter the kingdom by works of law, we will all be found to be sinners and therefore disqualified and prevented from entering the promised land on the basis of law. So Moses's failure creates a picture of how the law fails to bring us into righteousness, fails to bring us into the kingdom. Instead, it was Joshua who leads Israel into the promised land. And Joshua, as you know, is the name Jesus. How do we enter into the promised land? Through Jesus, not by law. Jesus is the one who leads us into salvation. He says he is the door by which we enter the kingdom of God. In fact, he called himself that door, that entryway. John chapter 10, verse 7, Jesus said to them again, Truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. So as Joshua led Israel into the promised land, so Jesus leads us into salvation and into the kingdom. Moses, by the time he's writing Exodus, has seen all of this more or less come to pass. Then it would make sense that Moses would introduce us to Joshua at this point to emphasize Joshua is the future leader of Israel. Now, turning to the battle itself, as Joshua takes some of the people of Israel and he begins to engage the Amalekites, Moses says, I'm going to go up on a hill overlooking the battle. And with him he brings his brother Aaron and a man named Hur. Hur is said to be Moses' brother-in-law, that is the husband of Miriam. That comes according to Josephus, though, so we take that with a grain of salt. Now, in terms of the battle itself, Israel probably has superior numbers, although some of them are women and children, not all of them could fight. So if there's an advantage on one side in terms of numbers, it's probably that the nation of Israel has more people, perhaps, But on the other hand, the Amalekites would probably have been equipped better, had better training, more mature at fighting, more experienced. And so they aren't necessarily one with an advantage over the other. It's hard to know how those two differences played out. But one thing Israel had to their advantage, they had Charlton Heston's underarms. (laughs) Chapter 17, verse 11. So it came about when Moses held his hand up that Israel prevailed. And when he let his hand down, Amalek prevailed. But Moses, his hands were heavy. Then they took a stone and put it under him and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and one on the other. Thus, his hands were steady until the sun set. So Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. I love to imagine how do these things develop? You know, I see how it turned out. How did it get going? As Moses watches the battle, somehow he finds that he has this ability to intercede on behalf of Israel. When he raises his hands to the Lord, the battle goes Israel's way. When his hands drop, Amalek begins to win the battle. Now, we don't know how he came to discover this connection. It could have just been natural. Maybe he felt inclined to pray, and as he prayed, he lifted his hands naturally, and when he did, he noticed the connection. I think it's more obvious than that because it says at the outset, he said, I'm going to go to the hill, and by the way, I'm going to have the staff of God with me. We understand the meaning of the staff. We understand its connection to God's power. We understand that through it, God channels his work. And so it would seem as though Moses anticipated that with his actions through God's staff, he could influence the battle. That would seem to be Moses' point of view, even from the start. It talks about Moses' hands, but I think you need to understand, given what we've already heard Moses say about the staff, that it's implied that it's the hands with the staff. It's the combination of Moses working with God's staff that's producing this outcome. But that's a fairly straining endeavor. If you ever tried to just hold your hands even just like this for a while, much less over your head, you won't be able to do it all day. And yet this is an all-day battle. So his muscles get out and his hands start to drop. And then her and Aaron step in to help. Now, we know that the Lord did not need Moses' hands to be raised in order to defend Israel. God could have defended Israel without this mechanism, clearly. So that begs the big question, why? Why use such a contrived method? Well, once again, the answer is he's trying to teach Israel something. It's really no different than the rock or the manna. There's a purpose in the method, and the purpose is to communicate something. First, remember, this is the first military battle that Israel has fought. And therefore, this is the first time that Israel will experience the Lord fighting for them through the work of men on the battlefield. Now it's one thing to see God bring the sea over the chariots to bring plagues down from heaven and so on. But it's another thing to watch what appears to be an otherwise human endeavor with no supernatural signs from God evident in the moment and then know that that was done by God. That's a harder thing to understand just by observing what's happening. You'll need something else, some other indicator to help that observer understand that what I'm watching is a supernatural outcome. Because without it, How might I attribute that outcome? I might have just thought that Joshua was a really good leader. That Israel is a lot tougher than they look. That Amalek is a pushover. I could explain it a hundred different ways without invoking God's power into the equation if I don't see it clearly. This is the same way, by the way, that God defeated a huge army with only 300 men in Gideon's day. Why reduce Gideon's numbers so much so that when the outcome takes place in the way God intends, no one in their right mind can say that 300 men that lap water out of a river could have possibly been capable of defeating such a huge army on their own. So these battles will occur frequently in Israel's history, both in their wanderings and in their conquest of Canaan under Joshua. And as they go forward, they'll always be led by Joshua, but the outcome of their fighting will always be the result of the Lord. So this very first battle sets an important precedent For the nation's understanding when Israel prevails, it's not Joshua who gets the credit. It's the Lord. So to ensure they appreciate it, God uses this staff in a very visible way on a big hill where everyone can see what's happening. Moses holds his staff hands in view. The staff serves as a symbol of God's power and authority. The battle goes the way they want when it's raised. When it lowers, the battle goes the other way. So when Moses drops the staff, the nation sees another half of the message. They see that. If Joshua and the men are left to do this on their own, you can't win. But if I'm involved, you'll always win. God doesn't need to do it that way, except that he needs the message to be clear. And so he uses this method to create that message. This scene is often thought to be one of the best pictures in Scripture of intercessory prayer. Now, to be fair, the account never explicitly says that Moses prays. and I'm not sure he actually did in light of the fact that it's the staff that's understood to be the source of the power in this moment, of God working through that staff. But even if Moses didn't pray, nevertheless, the scene itself is a beautiful example of God's intercession. And in that way, it can reflect prayer. And it does, I think, reflect the true purpose of prayer so perfectly that it's worth noting. I think too often we assume that prayer is an attempt on our part to persuade God to do our bidding. But God's will does not bend to the hearts of men, God's heart is to bend the will of men. The true purpose of prayer is to bring our needs before God in the hope of receiving His grace and His mercy in some way. Perhaps we'll receive exactly what we want or ask for. Or maybe the Lord will give us a completely different solution or maybe He'll give us nothing at all. Whatever He does, it's the best thing that we could receive. In the meantime, when it happens, we know it comes from the Lord. Why? Because we connect our prayer request With his answer. So, if you think of it by analogy, your willingness to be on your knees in prayer is the equivalent of Moses holding the staff in the air. Whatever comes next was from God. God is still going to work even if you don't go on your knees, but will the connection be made? Will the understanding in your mind be present? In fact, our prayer life will become the means to glorify God if we understand its purpose in that way. God's intercession gave opportunity for Moses and the people to see God doing his work and thereby glorifying him for it. Without the intercession, that work would have happened. But who would have known to credit the Lord? And in the same way, prayer is a billboard. God uses prayer to tell the world of his work on behalf of his children. Now, I'm not saying prayer doesn't have intercessory effect. What I am saying from Scripture is that God's will is not bending to the requests of our prayers, But our will is bent by our association to the Father through our prayer. And when we spend time seeking Him, then we have an opportunity to connect dots between our desires and His work in our life. That's why James says in James 4, 2, You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. That is a self-centered view of prayer. James is teaching that until you become proficient in seeking God for your needs, then you cannot mature into the kind of person who asks for the right thing in the right way. And until that happens, you can't see the fruit of God's provision. So you have to be accustomed to asking in order to become the kind of mature Christian who comes to ask for the right things instinctively. When you begin that kind of journey and you become closer to God's heart and you ask for the kinds of things that are in God's heart and you see him respond in kind, you begin to see his work in your life. And it's not necessarily conscious. You don't necessarily say to yourself, I used to ask for those things, but those are wrong. So now I'll ask for new things. It's the things on your heart that change. And then your heart change produces different desires in your prayer life. So Joshua prevails. Verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this in a book as a memorial and recite it to Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and named it The Lord is My Banner. And he said, The Lord has sworn... The Lord will have war against Amalek from generation to generation. The Lord commands Moses to begin writing a book. This is interesting because this is the first time of five altogether in which we hear the Lord telling Moses to write something. It's interesting that he's told to write five times in the course of the Torah and that there are five books in the Torah. That's probably not necessarily meaningful, but it is interesting. Nonetheless, this is the first time you see him being told to write and record God's word. In this case, he's told to write about this event and to include a promise that God's going to blot out the memory of Amalek. We've already talked about that. Later, Joshua encounters the Amalek's in Canaan when Israel enters the land. And at that time, the Lord orders Joshua to exterminate the Amalekites at that time. Unfortunately, or because of disobedience, some live on and are eventually Later destroyed through a series of campaigns that end with Hezekiah. So Amalek's fate becomes a teaching moment for Israel as well. You might ask yourself, why did God allow Amalek to attack Israel? I mean, he could have stopped it altogether, could have prevented it if he had wanted to. He allowed the attack, and then the ensuing battle. Why? Well, just as God has given Israel promises of future eternal glory and peace and, and possession of an inheritance, he also promises to put an end to all of Israel's enemies. Remember, he says, those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. Notice Moses is told to repeat these words, these words about Amalek's future. He's told to repeat them in Joshua's hearing. So it's not just important to write them down. It's important that Joshua hears this and knows this is true. Joshua and Israel need to have confidence to know that Israel's enemies will be defeated. They will, in fact, not just be defeated. They will cease to exist one day. That is still a true promise today. Israel's enemies still have the upper hand over Israel today, but in a future day, they will be exterminated from the earth. And then lastly, a memorial is erected to the Lord's victory. He builds this altar and he names it, The Lord is My Banner. That just refers to a military victory. And he says the Lord is the one who gives that victory. It's going to take four centuries before Amalek is eventually wiped out. There's going to be even a time in the Judges when the Amalekites have victory over part of Israel and take captive part of Israel. But later Saul defeats them so badly that they never have much strength again, and then eventually they die out in the time of Hezekiah. After they win the battle, moving back to Israel, they settle in this area for a time, giving Moses an opportunity to greet his family who comes up from Midian. Joshua, his wife, Zephora, and their kids. And that's the next scene. That's the scene of chapter 18. Chapter 18, verse 1. Now, Jethro, the priest of Midian... Moses' father-in-law heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took Moses' wife, Zipporah, after he had sent her away, and her two sons, of whom one was named Gershom, for Moses said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. The other was named Eleazar, for he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was camped at the Mount of God. He sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. Then Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and he bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and he went into the tent. Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had befallen them on the journey and how the Lord had delivered them. Jethro rejoiced over all the goodness which the Lord had done in Israel in delivering them from the hand of the Egyptians. So Jethro said, blessed be the Lord who delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of Pharaoh and who delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. For I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods. Indeed, it was proven when they dealt proudly against the people. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took a burnt offering and sacrifices for God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat a meal with Moses, his father-in-law, before God. So Jethro, you remember him, right? Priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, of course. He's heard in Midian all that's happened. This is further proof to us that men like Amalek would have heard as well. It's all over the place. Everyone's heard. So he travels up to visit Moses. He brings Moses' wife, Zipporah, and his boys to visit him. Remember Zipporah? She was the one who got upset over the cutting of the foreskin as they were getting ready to leave Midian and go to Egypt in the first place. And because of her discontent at the prospect of following God's instructions concerning the circumcision, Moses has the good sense to send her home. And as a result, she wasn't a part of any of the work of Moses in Egypt. That means it's worth remembering. She missed the chance to see and witness all of the miracles God did in Egypt, all the work that's come since and the way God has led them out. She missed it because she was unwilling to support Moses in obeying God's word. We also learned the name of Moses' sons. Now, we already knew the first one, Gershon. But it was in that scene earlier when she objects to cutting the foreskin that we learned there was a second son, but we never got his name at that time. Now we hear that his name is Eleazar, which means the Lord is my help because the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro sends word ahead of his arrival. So Moses shows Jethro respect by going out to meet him and he welcomes him into his tent. And he relates all the events of the Exodus. That must have been an incredible story, right? To hear Moses say how it all happened. And he may have had the shadows on the side of the tent. He may have done little hand puppets for the probably not. Jethro must have had wide eyes at the whole story, right? Every piece of it got better. Now, that had to be a story better than any Hollywood movie. Well, better than any but one Hollywood movie that I can think of. (laughs) Jethro responds to the story in some interesting ways. First, it says he rejoices over Israel's deliverance in verse 9. That, I think, tells us that he had a heart to bless those that the Lord has blessed and to love those the Lord loves. Secondly, he praises the Lord and credits him with this work in verse 10. That could suggest that Jethro is now convinced concerning the power and the influence of God, of the Hebrew God. Then in verse 11, he makes a confession. He says that this God of Israel was above all other gods. And then finally, in verse 12, he makes a sacrifice to the Lord and he offers thanks. So what do you make of his actions? Some would say, some believe that this proves Jethro either was a priest of Jehovah, the God of Israel, or at this moment he becomes a follower of God. Others would point out that in Numbers 25, we learn that the Midianites, of whom he is the priest of the Midianites, the Midianites are pagans and they worship many gods. You could find support, I guess, for either view in the text. I think if I had to pick one, I'd probably lean toward his statement, in verse 11, in which he says, I know the Lord is greater than all the gods. It would seem to suggest he is adding God to a pantheon. He's a synchronist. In other words, he is simply piling this God on top of others, although he is granting to this God the supreme role, the supreme authority above the rest. But he is not repenting of the rest, which is an important prerequisite. Let's go to the heart of the chapter, though. 18:13 and down to 27. We'll read the rest of it it came about the next day that Moses sat to judge the people and the people stood about Moses from the morning until the evening. Now, when Moses, his father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, what is this thing that you are doing for the people? For why do you alone sit as judge and all the people stand about you from morning until evening? Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, it comes to me. And I judge between a man and his neighbor and make known the statutes of God and his laws. Moses, his father-in-law, said to him, the thing you are doing is not good. You will surely wear out both yourself and these people who are with you for the task is too heavy for you. You cannot do it alone. Now, listen to me. I will give you counsel and God be with you. You be the people's representative before God and You bring the disputes to God, then teach them the statutes and the laws and make it known to them the way in which they are to walk and the work they are to do. Furthermore, you shall select out of all the people, able men who fear God, men of truth, who hate dishonest gain. And you shall place these over them as leaders of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties and of tens. Let them judge the people at all times. Let it be that every major dispute they will bring to you, but every minor dispute they themselves will judge. So it will be easier for you and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this thing and God so commands you, then you will be able to endure. And all these people also will go to their place in peace. So Moses listened to his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them the heads of the people, leaders of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. They judged the people at all times. The difficult dispute they would bring to Moses But every minor dispute they themselves would judge. Then Moses bade his father-in-law farewell, and he went his way into his own land. This is Jethro's one moment on the stage. He makes the most of it and gives some fantastic advice. He observes Moses taking on the duties of a judge in Israel. If the question ever arises, who was the first judge of Israel? Your answer should be Moses. It's understandable to see Moses in this role or to see him assuming this role You have to remember, this is two million people without lines of authority, without government. They live essentially in a commune. They take orders from Moses, who in turn receives them from the Lord. So inevitably, in this group of two million people, never mind that they are stiff-necked Jews, as the scripture later describes them, they're going to encounter disputes. They're going to have various forms of lawlessness, of crime, and, and so on. Sooner or later, someone has to judge over these matters or it becomes anarchy. And Moses naturally assumed that he is the one to accomplish this work. Furthermore, Moses was the one who receives all of God's instructions on a regular basis. And those instructions had to be handed down to the people. You have to remember, there's no email. There's no megaphones. He doesn't put it on his Facebook. There's no way for this to get disseminated effectively without him coming from Moses's mouth. And he can't speak loudly enough for two million people to hear. So he has to do it apparently in groups. If he has something to give to the people, he has to bring them all before him in some fashion. Otherwise, how does the word get passed out? So in verse 13, we see Moses forced, essentially, to serve in this way from morning until evening. You think you've got a bad job? This is Moses' life all day long. And thank goodness for him that Jethro came to visit. You can see it almost like any other family visit somebody comes out of town stays with you for a few days and just observes your everyday life and they better than anyone sometimes can pick up on parts of the life that's not working right the problem is can you bring it up can you mention it well sometimes wisdom comes from people who you might not want to hear it from right and so here's an outside observer who spends a little bit of time in moses's home is not an expert to god not an expert in god's law not an expert in the matters of the exodus he's just passing through But he happens to see something for which his wisdom is perfectly suited to solve the problem. So sometimes you'll find that wisdom coming from the least likely source. You need to be open to what God may bring you from whomever, including a mule at times. So Jethro takes it upon himself to point out the flaws in Moses' system. First, he says, this is not good. This is not beneficial. And that's an important statement because he's saying it's not just, I don't think it looks good. He's pointing it out as a matter of fact. It's not beneficial for you and it's not beneficial for the people. So, in other words, it's a bad system. Moses couldn't bear that burden indefinitely. And it's also a burden to others that they have to get served in this way. Secondly, the work that Moses chooses for himself, this work of being a judge, is work that puts him at odds with the true work, the true gift and mission that he has as a prophet of God to the people of Israel. He is to act as God's representative. That's the role God gave to Moses. And with that means he should come teaching the the law of God, the statutes of God, the instructions. And with the teaching, there is a natural extension to exhortation. That's where Jethro says you not only give them the law, you also show them how to walk in it. We often use different words. We talk about teaching and preaching. But those are two halves to the same coin. It's one thing to know. It's another thing for someone to stand in your life on a regular basis and say, we all know this, but are you doing it? And call you to do it. That's the role God gives to a prophet, to the leader here, Moses. But since he's so busy acting as judge, settling disputes between neighbors, can you imagine what kind of disputes came up between neighbors in the nation of Israel? It's somewhat similar to what your kids do in the back seat. He's touching me. He's on my side. The goat's eating my grass. Get your goat off my grass. It's my grass. It's not even my goat. I don't know. So, So he's busy with that, which is effectively an Acts 6 mistake. He's busy feeding widows instead of teaching the word of God. His solution to Moses, Jethro's solution is appoint trustworthy men to work alongside you at lower levels of authority in a chain of command to adjudicate these lesser disputes. They'll handle most issues. And only if there's an issue that's too serious for them to judge, should they bring it back to Moses. Jethro assumes that Moses will benefit from this change, but so will the people because Moses will be now in a position to endure and do the right work. But the people themselves are going to get quicker, easier resolution than they might have otherwise been able to get from Moses. So it should be clear to us all that these instructions are a wise precedent for us. They have immediate applicability to the way spiritual leaders work in the church today. It doesn't even really require. I hope that I would spell it out in great detail. But Let's just run down a list here of a couple of lessons. First. The obvious first one is leaders don't go alone in ministry. When you minister to some group, you shouldn't do it alone. And if the group grows large enough, you have to understand your role stops at a certain point and others' roles pick up. In a church setting, particularly, you're looking for a plurality of leadership in the church. If one man tries to do it all, inevitably he repeats Moses' mistake. Secondly, leaders should know their spiritual gifts and their calling and then focus on those things. And remain focused on those things and resist the temptation to do other things. The senior leaders, in particular, have a primary responsibility to train up the body in the word of God and to exhort people to live according to it. If that leader lets other duties come between them and teaching the word, then they fail that Acts 6 test also. They start feeding widows. I teach three or four times a week as much as people would be willing to sit and listen as much as I could take time to study. And all the other stuff that people think comes with pastoring is done by somebody else. I really take seriously that Act 6 mandate that the pastor teaches. So to men of pastoral ministry whose teaching is limited to a 20-minute short and sweet sermon on Sunday mornings, I'm not their judge, but it seems to me that they've really let the priorities of their ministry come second to a bunch of other stuff that they're spending their week on. This is what we are called to do. There are plenty of other people to do everything else if we let them do their part. And here's what I'll tell any pastor who might challenge me on this thinking. If our people truly learned the Bible and lived by it, every other issue we face as leaders would diminish, if not disappear altogether. Thirdly, we should establish some degree of hierarchy in leadership in the church. I know it's common in some circles in which people have rejected the traditional church model and have sought something more biblical or first century church-like. One of the things that can go wrong in that mindset is to reject altogether what are true biblical principles of leadership. One of those is hierarchy. Multiple levels of leadership support an efficient operation in the body so long as those men meet the qualifications and that at the top of that ladder, there are men teaching the word of God. Remember that levels of leadership do not, though, imply a bunch of employees and staff who receive support from a congregation. That's not implied. There could be little or no employee structure in that and just have people in leadership doing it as volunteer work within a body, which is certainly how it was done in Moses' day. You didn't see him start signing them up for W-2s as he asked them to start supporting, right? It was just an understanding that this was a service of of worship. Next week, we're going to move with Israel to the mountain of Sinai. So this is the end of that transitionary phase from the water of the Red Sea to the encampment around the base of the mountain. We'll have one more lesson in this year, as you know, and in that lesson, we'll see them just start to settle into and around the mountain of Horeb, the mountain Sinai. And in the coming weeks, they'll encamp there. Moses gets the law. We know what's coming. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your, you for your warmth in our hearts. I thank you, Father, for the refreshment of your word. I thank you for the power in the spirit to show us these things and to call us upward and onward to the call of Christ. Let us go out from this place renewed in our desire to preach you in all your ways and, and in all the pictures that you have in Scripture. And most of all, Father, give us a renewed desire to lead, live lives that reflect what we've learned. And uh, with the time we have left in this year, I pray, Father, we would make every moment of it to proclaim your gospel to those who know it, who need to know it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.